from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. With special guests, Councillor Tudor Evans OBE. And you'll never guess, we've got the letter that Elizabeth I sent to Francis Drake. Bloody great big wax seal on it. It's a national treasure. And where do we keep it? Do you think we keep it? We keep it in a shed in Catdown next to a tyre dump. And Vince Brooks from Engage Workplace. I would naturally say you should have done this 20 years ago. And that's with hindsight, of course, you know, and that's a wonderful thing. But I'm just so thrilled and pleased that we did. And here we are. Yeah, I think that would be the one thing I'd say you should have done this earlier. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford and I'm the Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with the latest in our series of In Conversation With podcasts and I'm pleased to welcome to the Chamber Chat section today Tudor Evans OBE, Leader of Plymouth City Council. Welcome Tudor. Hello. <laughs> you look nervous, don't be nervous, it's all fine. This is my first podcast. I'm glad I've got a first for you. Well I'm going to start with a really hard-hitting journalistic question, I'm sorry about this and just brace yourself but... Is it true you once had a ponytail? Well, it is. I'm 61 now, so the chances are I would have had one at some point down the line. Yeah, I had one when I was, I don't know, it was the beginning of the 90s. Yeah, it used to amuse the head of economic development of the council when I was in front of business people with my ponytail. Yeah, he's very polite about it, but, you know. We just sort of looked at it, yeah. I had a former chief constable, actually, who was very averse to beards. I'm actually sporting a sort of slightly scruffy mountain man beard, and he wouldn't promote any officer who had a beard. And I understand also you're an avid record collector and used to run student gigs. Do you secretly wish you were some sort of rock legend? Is that what it is? <laughs> well, I'm definitely no musician. But yeah, I mean, I started collecting records when I was uh, seven, I think, or eight. You know, my first one was I'm a Believer by the Monkees. That's mm. how old. Um, I saw her face. Yeah, and with I'm Not Your Stepping Stone and the B-Side. Now, how can I remember that when that I can't remember amazing. what I did this morning? <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it was really important to me. And I kept Mrs Osborne and her record shop in Ebervale, South Wales, in business, I think, for a bit through my teenage years till I moved to Plymouth. But I was at the Polytechnic. And my academic career sort of went down the pan when I discovered the Polyents team, which was the student union gig promoters. Right. And I started working alongside them, volunteering with the road crew and on the promotion side and all that. And I became the social secretary a year later. So I got the responsibility of booking acts. And I had some good ones. And I yeah, had who's some... your coup? Who's the big one that we'd all say... Ah, oh, you got them there. Well, I mean, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think the, probably the biggest one we had was XTC. Yeah. The week that making plans for Nigel was really it in the top of the hit parade. And we had an absolute seller at the Poly uh, main hall there. It was fantastic. But, you know, we had other triumphs as well. <laughs> we had Tom Robinson. That was brilliant. Stiff Little Fingers. And it was just glorious. I really enjoyed it. And then I, when I left the Poly, I went in and I worked at HMV Records down at the bottom end of town. Your first was that one. What was your last 
record that you've collected. And is it vinyl? Are you still on vinyl? Are you CD or are you downloading? Well, I'm doing it all, really. I don't buy vinyl anymore, except for my sister, because she's really into it. So the last bit of vinyl I bought was for her, for her Christmas present. What did I buy for myself? The last one, I believe, was I bought bought a box set of The Police. And I've got all the albums on vinyl, but I didn't have any of them on CD, so I bought that. And that was brilliant, you know, sort of remembering when I was like 20 and the police sort of soundtracked my early 20s. Mm. It's funny, actually. I mean, I had a contract passed to me when I took over as social secretary of the poly for the police to play in the student union canteen for 50 quid. And that was the year that, if you remember, they had Message in a Bottle and Walking on the Moon. Walking on the Moon, yeah. So you try holding Miles Copeland to a contract (laughs) for 50 quid. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got this contract, well, sue me, sue me, you know. And of course, you know, I mean, their price went up from 50 quid to 2,000 quid in six months. And I mean, that was when 2,000 pounds was a lot of money, unlike today, right? And the police ended up playing in Plymouth, of course, that year. They played in Woods. I remember Woods. Supporting Alberto Ilostrios Baranias. That's why they blew out the poly. Amazing. Fantastic. (laughs) You also ran the student newspaper, I understand. So did you fancy going on for a career in journalism and running Rolling magazine? Well, you know, I mean, to be honest, I was a science undergraduate, not an English undergraduate, so my writing probably wouldn't have stood me in very good stead. What I did enjoy was taking on the sort of music reviews and trying to introduce sort of what we called very pretentiously culture pages into the student newspaper at the time. And I ended up moving on from that to working in a community print shop down at Virginia House. I was a volunteer there. I was unemployed for quite a few years. And we turned it into a workers' cooperative and commercialised it, kept us going, kept the wolf from the door for 10 years and learned a lot about business in that time, you know. Mm. And your degree was environmental science, was that right? That's right, yeah. yeah. It was Plymouth was one of only three or four places in the country where you could do environmental science back in 1977. Mm. University of East Anglia... Plymouth Polytechnic and Sheffield University. You have an incredible memory. I'd never remember all that. Well, I'd remember where I've been rejected from. So yeah. <laughs> no, I don't hold grudges, but... Oh, if I remembered all my rejections, I'd have a very big memory, I have to say. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, an environmental science then, you know, was a very different proposition from today very much so but I was passionate about it and these days in terms of our agenda on climate change and all of that kind of stuff it's taken 40 years for to me use it. to use it yeah, yeah 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 but you're still passionate about it yeah yeah of course and um, you know I got grandchildren right uh, children and mm. you know you worry about the future for them and yeah. so if there's some way you can influence that and if you can do something and we can all do something however local it is then you do it right Hmm. Well, I agree. And is that what drove you into politics? Well, making a difference and changing things. Yeah, politics, yeah. Because, I mean, my dad was like, he was a trade union official back in South Wales. He was vice president of the British Association of Quarry Management for eight years. He was president of the BACM South Wales for 25 years. So there was politics in the house. Not overt, but it was there and... I was interested in it. And, of course, when I came to Plymouth, the student union here, of course, like many people, they find their voice, you know. Yeah, well, I get that. And I understand you have your 100 pledges on your wall in your office. So you're obviously 
care on actually delivering on what you've said you'll deliver on, on what you really want? Well, again, one of the things people say to you is you don't keep your promises. Mm. And that's why I've never sort of taken that lying down, I suppose. For example, in the last three manifestos we've issued, we've made a total of 250 pledges. Within 17 of having done 250 pledges. You've beaten me to it. I was going to ask you how many are left unticked. Are there any that are bugging you? Or any you think, oh, am I ever going to get that over the line? Some of these, I mean, there's one or two that are dependent on government support directly. And sometimes government can frustrate. Most of the time... Yes, they can. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, the thing is with local government is we're the end of the line, aren't we? It's not like in the rest of the world... You know, local government in Britain is probably the least decentralised. Our system of government is more centralised than anywhere else. Mm. And yet we are providing 300-odd services to the local community. Mm. But a lot of what we do and how we do it is determined by people who don't know anything about it, who are as remote as it is possible to be from Plymouth as you could possibly conceive. Yes. That's why local government is working against the odds it's why local government could do much, much more if it had more authority, like our brothers and sisters abroad mm. have. And that isn't about tax raising powers and all that malarkey. It's really about the beauty of local government is you can craft elegant local solutions to local difficulties, OK? Mm. And sometimes the edicts and the lightning bolts coming down from London just don't cut it. Yeah, They're they don't irrelevant. seem to resonate with, no. with people. I was, funnily enough, leads me on to something I was going to ask you about, which was about your view on the sort of Great Southwest and the all-party parliamentary group. Because, you know, I'm all for the Great Southwest, sounds great kind of stalled a bit, not a lot of action? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we were kind of responding to what we thought was a government initiative, mm. which was more decentralisation and more devolution. If you remember, that train left the station a little while ago yeah. and it's stuck somewhere in Siberia, I think, with frozen <laughs> points, which is a shame. But that mm. means that some parts of the country have got a devolved kind of setup. A powerhouse like the Midlands Engine, the Northern... Yeah, powerhouse. I mean, you know, between you and me and the listeners, you know, some of these powerhouses are a pretty an artificial construct as well. Mm. What does work is city regions. So Manchester, the Greater Manchester Conurbation, which got yeah. 10 local authorities working together... That's different proposition, perhaps from a looser, almost a marketing approach that mm. others would take. And so the Great Southwest would only be a marketing proposition, really. It wouldn't exercise authority. It would be about marshalling voices mm. in pursuit of particular goals for the region and things that would be done better by a lot more voices. You know, you've got Transport for the North, for example, okay, mm. which everybody cites as the success story. Right. You know, the North, United, Yorkshire, Humberside, Liverpool, Manchester, all these places coming together. It's nonsense. I mean, they've just been bounced by the government now on things like HS3, Transpennine travel, all of these things. No, I mean, the point is, until the actual seat of power, the power itself shifts from Westminster outwards, mm. we'll always be vulnerable to the Secretary of State or the Cabinet of the day. And that's a fact. Mm. And so I'm up for more, being trusted more. I mean, mm. sometimes people just don't realise how much we do too. I mean, the council budget's 500 million a year. Yeah. 500 million. And we don't lose it down the sofa. Again, this year, you know, we're going to come in on budget for £500 million spend. That's pretty remarkable, especially isn't it? Especially in a year like this. In Especially in a year like this, yeah. with all the challenges we've had, yeah. Yeah. And so, you have any thoughts about sort of 
I want to say higher office makes it sound like you were going to end up <laughs> wanting to be PM and, you know, but any thoughts going on to do other political roles? Or are you kind of happy where you are? And- I'm happy where I am. I mean, that sounds like I've rested on laurels. I don't want to go to Parliament and all that stuff. I mean, the people who do that, I admire greatly, you know, because they're away from their families for a long time in the week and there's all sorts of things. But for local government leaders, I've seen local government leaders go into Parliament thinking it's the next step up or the next Mm. step on. And I've seen them basically miserable because if you think about what I do, I've got delegated spending authority, okay, as a leader of the council Mm. and as a cabinet member. So I can spend money and do some stuff. You don't have that authority as an MP. You don't even have that authority as a cabinet member, okay? And so if you're looking for where does power lie, it doesn't lie with an MP. I'm sure the MP can, because of an MP, gets more clout, mm. of course, right? And they can bring people Part together. Of a voice. And, you know, wouldn't want to disrespect that. But no, I mean, seriously, I mean, I can affect more change where I am in the post in the time, role you're in. Yeah. in the role I'm in. Yeah. And, you know, I've still got a lot of life in me. I mean, I know I've been around a while, but, you know, some people at my age are only just joining the council. So I'm hoping if I can stay breathing, then I've got a bit more to give, you know. (laughs) And you've had a long career. You're a political survivor. You were council leader of the year in 2015. And you were made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. You're an OBE for services to local government in 2016. How did that feel when you get, I guess it's a letter. How did that feel when you opened that? Well, it was a shock, you know, because nobody tells you that you're in for it, which is just as well, because you might get your hopes up. (laughs) But seriously, I mean, it was great because it meant somebody thought that I was worth being nominated. Mm. You know, that was good. That was a good feeling. Because a lot of the time, like in leadership positions, and I'm sure you know this, People don't always tell you whether you're doing a good job or not, and they tell you if you're not. But <laughs> they're they don't, very quick to tell you they, if you're not. <laughs> they don't tell you if you are. But I mean, that was great because I mean, my dad was not alive, my mum wasn't alive, but the rest of my family were really proud of what I'd done. You know, my aunties, and so we went up. You know, my sister and brother-in-law, my cousins, their kids. Our kids and the grandchild at the time, and we had a smashing day, you know. There was only four of us allowed in the palace, but we went out for a bit of a meal afterwards, you know. We hired a room in the Gherkin, I think it was, and had a bit of a slap-up stuff. Yeah, we had a nice time. And one of the best days of my life. Still to come... Vince Brooks from Engage Workplace. For me, it is network, network, network. And I think, you know, that the pandemic has really hit me personally in that way because I love to network and I love to get out and meet people. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. So would that young lad from Ebervale ever have dreamed of being leader of the council and having an OBE? No, I don't think so. I'm really proud of where I live and where I grew up and where I was born. I'm really proud of the family and my heritage. But not all I wanted. I wanted to see what else was out there. That's all. That's all I ever mm. had. And, you know, that question about what do you want to be when you're growing up? And I said, well, you know, when I am, I'll tell you. And I'm still in that, you know. I'm <laughs> I was sti- going to say I haven't grown up yet. No, no. Well, I'm still blundering away through it. But, I mean, I'm content. I keep asking myself, what would my dad say to me if he could mm-hmm. see? Because, you know, my dad passed almost 20 years ago now, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we weren't able to sort of talk about the stuff that I've done. 
But if he was pro to me, then I'd be content with that, you know. Mm. I'm sure he would be. Do you suffer from imposter syndrome? A lot of leaders do. I mean, some of your answers, you've been very self-deprecating. You've done some amazing things. I mean, you look at the box. I know that's not solely down to you, but that's a fantastic. You must be proud of that. Well, I am. I mean, I think it's the best thing that I've been involved in in politics. And, you know, to be spending a large amount of money on a cultural initiative during a recession pandemic and I mean it's really important and I've been nurturing this for 10 years you know the idea that Plymouth needed to celebrate its history and reflect on its history Mm. in a best way you know I mean when we were bidding for the money Stuart I'm saying you know and you'll never guess we've got the letter that Elizabeth I sent to Francis Drake Bloody great big wax seal on it. Yeah. It's a national treasure. And where do we keep it? Do you think we keep it? We keep it in a shed in Catdown next to a tyre dump. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about that, oh, okay. Criminal. Well, you know, national treasures, Plymouth treasures, right? And so, you know, it was important that we kind of picked that up and said, you know what, we need a palace to this history because it's so yeah. rich. Yeah. It's so rich. You know, we got more history than we know what to do with. We got more history than all the other cities that of our size put together, you know. You think about it. So anyway, to go back to what you asked me, do I get imposter syndrome? Yeah, of course. Will I get found out? You know, I mean I look, I have to go into meetings with people who know far more about everything than I do, mm. anything than I do, right? Because I'm chief amateur. Because councillors, basically, we make decisions on a basis of expert advice. That's what we do all day. We decide stuff. Sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't get it right. Mm. But all we do is think about what people are telling us and make a judgment. So that doesn't make me an expert. It doesn't make me authoritative. All it makes me is certain (laughs) of my facts. And like I say, I'm not one of these folks who believe, you know, suddenly you, you become leader and therefore you know everything. I mean, sometimes you have to plot a course where there isn't one and you've got to get people to follow you. Who wants a leader without any followers? But I know I've got a bit of a track record, so I can always fall back on that. But that'll only sort of work for the past. It didn't work for the future. And you have to keep working at it. You have to keep relevant. You have to keep learning. And you have to keep negotiating with people to take them with you. And that's what I try and do every day, you know. The most important thing about being a leader is to be self-aware and to know I don't know everything. I want to move on from politics, but there's Mm. one thorny issue I do genuinely want to address. And it's funny because, you know, I'm not political, as you know. In my role, I have to be apolitical. But a thorny issue for Plymouth is the airport. And I don't want to go down a political route, but I'm kind of interested in your views on it and whether you regret the council entering into a lease arrangement with the leaseholder that in such a way that now we seem to be in stalemate and that it doesn't seem to be going one way or another. And I just wonder what your view on that is. Well, do you want me to tell you something you probably didn't know? So the deal that was done between Sutton Harbour and Mm. Plymouth City Council wasn't negotiated by me. It wasn't negotiated by my administration. Mm. It was negotiated by my predecessor, Mm. Conservative leader, and it changed hands and therefore it was passed to me to sign virtually within a few days. So that's excuse number one. (laughs) But seriously, even if I have foreseen that the Sutton Harbour Company that that deal was signed with then was going to transmogrify into something completely different, because it did, it went from, you know, Duncan Godfrey to various other owners, and again, it's changed hands again, and different proposition. But what Duncan 
and Nigel did with that deal with us was give them the opportunity to get planes in and an airline. Because it's all very well having an airport, but if nobody wants to fly with you, and you've got to remember, (laughs) British Airways were pulling out at very short notice, leaving us with an airport and no planes. So they offered to basically start an airline up from scratch, pretty much, Air Southwest. Mm. So if it hadn't been for that deal, and again, you can blame me, you can thank my predecessor, whatever you want to do, they wouldn't have been Plymouth Airport for all that time, for another, and I think that was another eight years of flying from Plymouth. Now, if you're going to ask me, would I have closed the airport in 2011, or rather, would I have given permission as leader of the council for Sutton Harbour to close the airport? The answer to that would have been no, I wouldn't. Mm. And I made it very clear to council officials and the opposition at the time that I was not happy with that, because a previous head of economic development had made it very clear to me that in the race for foreign direct investment, Sometimes it's the marginal advantages that attract firms to your locality. So all things being equal, if the skills mix is right, if the premises are right, what's the next thing? It might be an airport. It might Mm. be the proximity to a decent golf club. It might be really good shopping for your workers and your partners of your workers. There are all of these things have to be considered. So... To close the airport, even though it was losing a few bob, and it was a few bob in relative, you know, firms. Like I said, I've never have sanctioned it. Mm. What's been interesting ever since, of course, is, and this is where I must get political, is that my political opponents have suggested it's somehow my fault. Mm. But in fact, the decision was made by the Conservative administration in 2011. And it was a big mistake, in my view. Mm. But that's, we, we are where we are now, Stuart. You did ask, I had to answer. No, no, you did. Mm. I think in some ways, technology may resolve it for us if we don't get around to resolving that problem anytime soon, because aircraft are becoming quieter, more vertical takeoff and landing. You look at Halo Aviation, who've invested in Victoria House because they see that as a future heliport. So it may come to a point where you don't need the big long runway anyway. We'll move on from politics. But I just think the business community would shoot me if I didn't ask that question when I've got you in the seat. But moving on from politics, so the most important thing is you've somehow become a Facebook sort of internet star cooking. How did this come about? (laughs) Well, you know, with the pandemic... There was a lot of restaurants in Plymouth closed. And with that, the fishermen and the markets and the fishmongers were in real trouble. Their market and the prices for the fish collapsed almost overnight. So how do we stimulate demand for fish when the restaurants aren't open? Well, let's first of all, and brilliant initiative by Terry Portman, getting involved with the local fishing community, getting call for fish off the ground where, you know, you've got a number of merchants, you know. I mean, that started off in Plymouth. I know it's nationwide. (laughs) Brilliant. Website, order my fish, comes to my door, you know, fantastic. Mm. But then she said, you know, you do a bit of cooking. Why don't you cook some fish and video it? Like So once a week, my other half grabs my phone and we do a Facebook Live. So I cook live, which is terrifying, actually. And the reason I do it is quite simple. If an idiot like me can cook fish, anybody can. And far too many people really are afraid of fish. And Mm -hmm. there's no need to be afraid of fish. One, they're dead. They're not going (laughs) to come back to you. But also they're delicious. And they're really, really easy and very quick. So 
Mm. Well, yeah, there's that as well. And so I do these little videos and then Call for Fish pick them up and they put them on their kind of YouTube feed and things like that. Well, it's brilliant. I've seen them. And my only complaint, which I've said to you before, is, you know, I'm both Peveril residents and I've not yet been invited mm. to dinner because they look fantastic. Yeah. What do you love about Plymouth and the Southwest and what frustrates you about it? Well, what I love, blimey. Well, I think about it, you know, like so when I was in Ebervale, I was like 25, 28 miles from the sea. Mm. And then that sea was Newport. <laughs> so we used to come down here on holiday as kids, you know. So yeah. when I got the chance to come to Plymouth to study yeah. at the Poly, you know, I mean, wow. You know, yeah. I remember going up Smeaton's Tower when I was like eight with my auntie yeah, Glenn. Me too. Yeah. And, you know, so I remember that view and I remember that, you know, sea and I remember that land being right next to it and know, Dartmoor and all that. And you're thinking, you know, this is the best city on earth. It must be. And, you know, the life down here is good, isn't it? The yeah. air's sweet as well, you know? Yeah. What I don't I like? Yeah, what frustrates me is to keep having to pipe up about Plymouth, yeah. to keep having to explain it, I suppose. I do it every day, you know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I, well, I, nobody could say you're not a Plymouth fan. I see it as my duty as a leader yeah. of the council to go and tell everybody what they need to know about Plymouth. And that yeah. is, you know, we're actually really important to the UK prosperity we are a great place for industry. We're a great place to bring up a family. We're a great place to visit. We're a great place to stay. I couldn't be happier to be in this position, Stuart, to be honest. I yeah. mean, I love what I do. I hope I can continue to do it for a bit longer. There's no need to do down Plymouth. There are plenty of people who have no idea who we are to do that. I just think it's our job to keep shouting as loudly mm. as we can so that people keep taking notice of us. I want them to take notice of us because we do great things here, I great think things. We do, and the National Marine Park, another thing of which mm. you must be really proud because that's giving Plymouth a sense of civic pride and civic identity. It's really wonderful. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in. We've got a lottery bid in, so we'll hear about that in due course, which could really unlock the potential of the Marine Park. You know, I've seen photos of Plymouth with Plymouth Sound full of boats, full of swimmers, full of people. And those days are returning. I mean, yeah. you see the stand-up paddleboarding, you see the world swimming, and you see yeah. that. And you're thinking, you know, people are beginning to return to the water in the sort of ways that they used to. And we can keep that going, I think. It's part of their heritage. It's part of their birthright. And we want yeah. to keep going with that. I've just bought a kayak myself. There we are. There you are. You see, getting out on the water. I just want to end with asking, well, firstly, if you've got any sort of message for the business community. But before I do, I want to say, you know, a genuine thank you from the business community. This has been a really rough time and I am really proud of the relationship that we have with the council and vice versa. We get on so well, we consult, we don't fall out, we don't have to necessarily agree on everything, but we do have such a fantastic relationship, which I'm really grateful for. So thank you for that. But do you have a message for the business community? Well, it's just to continue to say that every work in Iowa, <laughs> the administration that I lead and the officers of the council it's all about jobs. It's all about business. It's all about dignity of labour and all those other things, OK? You know, we are what we do. We are what we make. And what we do here, we do very well. Now, our Resurgam programme, which is our economic reset project, where we put the business community in charge of that, 11 mm. sectors with private sector leads. Why did we do that? Because we don't know best in the mm. council. You know best in the business community. So having you in the lead on stuff you know most about seemed to make perfect sense mm. and is emblematic of the trust with us being in support of your efforts. 
So I'm really, really proud of that relationship too, Stuart. And it's not just about personalities. It's about the institutions working together Mm. and having a respect for each other and what they have to do. And that's taken a while to get together, but it is there and it's very solid and dependable. And I think, you know, I would say to people who aren't members of the chamber, I'd say join. I'd say join because the representation is great, the voice is heard, and the partnership is sound and strong and doing its best on behalf of all the businesses in Plymouth. That's my message. Well, thank you for your time. Really appreciate you joining us. And Tudor Evans, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the southwest. Hello there. Welcome to the second part of our In Conversation with podcast series. And this is Chambermaid. This is talking to our members about their businesses. And I'm delighted today to be joined by a friend of the Chamber and a longtime member, Vince Brooks from Engage Workplace. Hello, Vince. Hello, Stuart. Hi. We're virtual. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we have to do this in this way, I guess, but it's great to be on. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's a pleasure. We'd just like to find out a bit about your business and how it started and what you did. So can you tell us where it came from? How did it start? Do you remember the moment you decided to go for it and branch out on your own? Yeah, I do very clearly. And it wasn't an easy decision to make. I think everybody is, when you first decide that's the route you're going to take, it can be an anxious feeling. I'd worked in Plymouth for many years and had been a partner in a previous business that we built up very successfully. That partnership ran its course. So I then decided that it was something I wanted to continue with. I was very passionate about creating good quality commercial interiors, particularly the office area. So I had the time and the money to invest in it and the time also to develop new projects, which was very key to it which is what I did, and that was about seven years ago. So here we are seven years later with eight members of staff, project managers, good team of contractors, and our own building, which is fantastic. So how did that feel, that moment you went, right, this is it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to start myself? It was probably an anxious feeling. It's the unknown. I've never actually done it before to that extent. And so, yeah, intrepidation, I suppose, but also I did have quite a strong belief in my own ability. And I think that self-confidence has to be there for you to look ahead and say, okay, short term, it might be a bit rocky, but long term, I'm confident that I can make it work. Yeah, mixed feelings. I think mixed is definitely the answer, isn't it? I mean, I've done it a couple of times and it's sort of terrifying and exciting all at the same time. But And I get that yeah. thing about confidence because on one part of you is confident you can do it and the other part of you, I suffer from what they call imposter syndrome, which is I'm worried one day somebody's going to say, hang on a minute, you're just Stuart. <laughs> what are you doing as chief executive? You know, If you could go back seven years and you could mm. whisper into the ear of a seven-year younger Vince Brooks, clearly when you were 21, what would you say to yourself from seven years ago? Looking back, obviously, we've been successful. We've got a long established business now. We're doing some really nice projects around the region. So I would naturally say you should have done this 20 years ago. And that's with hindsight, of course, you know, and that's a wonderful thing. But I'm just so thrilled and pleased that we did. And here we are. So, yeah, I think that would be the one thing I'd say you should have done this earlier. Yeah, they say there's never a good time to be ready. We're never really ready the best time. Well, they say it's like planting a tree. The best time to plant a tree was yesterday. And the second Mm. best time is today, you know, because you can't change it. So at least you've done it. And that seven year journey, I'm trying to think where that takes us back to. I mean, it was post the last recession and pre this trouble there's probably been some highs and lows on the way what's been the highest high and what's been the lowest low i would say i've been successful in several different areas less so in others but i think one of the highlights of my time here in plymouth was 
actually hunting down and getting involved on the Plymouth Life Centre project. And every man and his dog was after that project. And I just took a different route. And this came out of networking, to be honest. So I found out that the decisions were going to be made elsewhere. I think it was in Leicester or somewhere. And a project manager was coming down from Leicester to run the site. So I made contact with him and we won the project. And I think we were nominated for Small Business of the Year Award at that time as well, which was a great high for us in quite a short period of time. Lowe's, that's always a difficult one, Stuart, because, you know, when you put a lot of effort in and really feel that you want to win this project and the project is yours and then for some reason, whatever reason, relationships, whatever it is, Mm. you don't win it. And that is always a low and it hits everybody when, you know, you work hard to try and win something. But we win more than we lose, which is a fantastic position to be in and the projects are getting bigger and better quality. So we're really pleased we are where we are. Well, that's the salesman in you that doesn't like to lose any pitch. Did you employ those really subtle sales techniques of like wearing a Leicester football club scarf or something when you met the guy? Because there are all these little techniques, aren't there? Yeah, there are little techniques and, you know, that just comes out. And I think partly it's about just why I enjoy the role so much is meeting, developing new relationships with new people. And I think that's why I'm such an advocate of networking really enjoy networking and establishing those new contacts of which of course the chamber is a huge part for me in that the best part you said yes yes i agree yeah (laughs) i mean you've always been a great supporter and advocate of the chamber and we're really grateful it's nice to have you out there as a sort of ambassador for us singing the praises of the team if you'd like to feature on a future episode of in conversation with send an email to info at freshairstudios.com So has there been anyone particularly that's inspired you in this journey? Is there someone in business you look up to, someone you think, oh, wow, they really made me feel like I could go for it or inspired what you do? I guess there are none specifically come to mind. I don't have to say this, of course, but I will say this is my wife, Francine, who is a great inspiration because she set up her business, Engage People Development Limited, in 2006. So when we were talking about setting up Engaged Workplace, it was a natural combination because Engaged People Development is very focused on people, of course, and so is our business. Mm. You know, we do the physical changes to the workplace environment and the people development side do leadership training and change management. So Mm. there was a natural link there with our businesses and she has helped and inspired me all the way along to push on and drive the business and make it a success. So... Yeah, she'd have to be my number one. I would also say Steve Whiteway, who sadly we've lost. Mm. And when I first set up, he introduced me through the chamber to many key people in the local community, the business community. And I would say he kick-started my business. You know, he introduced me to people with no personal gain whatsoever and also a great advocate of the chamber himself. So, yeah, I would say he's a great inspiration for me as well. He's a legend. I mean, he was the ultimate networker. He just loved connecting people, putting them in touch with each other. We'll miss him terribly. What's the end goal for Engage? Where do you want to take it? I mean, clearly you've got at least 50 working years left in you. What's at the end of that? Well, that's very kind of you, Stuart. You're obviously not connected visually. So uh, (laughs) it's the unknown, isn't it? I think, sadly, the pandemic has put us all back a year, probably. You know, we were online for our best year ever to almost double what we were doing the previous years. And then it hits. So it's difficult to know where your longer term plans then pan out or where they will be or when the end game will be. But, Mm. yeah, we're just happy with what we're doing. We're continuing to invest in the business and grow the business. 
a couple of things we'd like to add to the business to give it a longer term. And that's what we're working on now. Anything you can tell us or is it top secret? Yes, I would say it's confidential. If you told me you'd have to kill me, eh? (laughs) Well, I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. So what's your USP? What do Engage do? You know, you're a salesman. You must have your sort of elevator pitch. What's different about you? You're not just office fit out. What's Engage about? Well, I mean, just office fit out is quite a loose term. And I think where we come from, as I touched on before, we're very people focused. The people are the occupiers of the working environments that we produce. And so they are key to everything that we do. And I think we provide solutions that are key to each and every business. Each and every business is different, has a different culture, different set up in terms of their demographic and you know what is their driver why are they doing what they're doing Mm. so we would create a very unique key solution to that business and i think that's where we pull in the different trades we pull in the different suppliers to make sure that we put forward products and a good working environment that suits that business and i think that's where our usp is that's the key to our business And I guess if you do that right, people recommend you, they go into other offices and they see what a good job you've done and think, ah, we could do this. Absolutely, yeah. And it comes down to networking again, doesn't it? Because you can network everywhere, but if you do rubbish work everywhere, your network, they don't touch them. (laughs) And that helps you to achieve a good quality outcome of every job. So you've grown the business over the last seven years. If you had any advice to any of our businesses, not just startups, but probably aimed at the smaller startup business, what would that advice be? For me, it is network, network, network. And I think, you know, that the pandemic has really hit me personally in that way, because I, as I said before, I love to network and I love to get out and meet people and establish and build new relationships. And that's key Mm. for me. And I would say that the Chamber has been the go-to network organisation for me. And going back to when we opened our first office in Yelton, for example, Peter Hartland, he kindly came out and did a photograph for us and opened our new office, which was fantastic. So it's been a two-way street with the Chamber all the way along. And that support back and forward has always been greatly appreciated, which is why I continue to support the Chamber. I think also have a great belief in your own ability. Be prepared for knocks. I know these are some of the standard things that people say, but they're all very true. So be prepared for lean periods. You know, you don't have anybody to give you any money when (laughs) it is running lower. But then I think also have good short and long-term plans. I think to have a long-term plan particularly keeps you on track and enables you to steer in the right direction. Even if you do get those knocks, you keep your eye on the prize, as I say. Oh, and I would say, of course, join the chamber. I can promise you I haven't given this man an envelope stuffed with cash to say this, but thank you and bless you for saying it. And it's funny you should say about the resilience thing. I've been in post two years and three months, something like that. And I said to my chairman fairly recently that I've learned after that amount of time that the highs are never as high as you think they're going to be, but the lows are definitely not as low as you think they're going to be. It's about the long-term resilience, riding it out, and it all comes good. As long as the general trajectory is up, it's all good. Well, look, Vince, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for being such an advocate of the Chamber. Really appreciate it. Wish you all success. And I long for the day we can raise a glass together, perhaps at Albion or Argyle or on the corporate circuit somewhere. Anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> yes, the pub. Corner of a street. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah. We're human beings. That's what we want to do, isn't it? Shake hands, meet people. We're social animals. Vince Brooks, Engage Workplace, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Joe. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links, and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. 
presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.